as the myth turns. Because mythology is the greatest soap opera of all time. With your cultural interns, Eris and Z. Interns because we're not professionals. And we're not getting paid. Hey guys, it's Eris and I'm doing the episode by myself today. Hooray! Today we are uh, going to talk about ancient hospitality and how it affects um, even modern day customs that we have today. And I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I've, I've got places from all around the world. A lot of hospitality, I mean, obviously there are differences in customs based on culture and also um, and culture, especially in ancient times, was very much influenced by location. So different types of customs, if you live in a very cold mountainous area, is going to be different from then if you live in a very warm, um, you know, humid, tropical area. So uh, especially because once you get down to like pre easy transportation when you when your mode of transportation is yourself then culture really does reflect literally the location of the geography and your in your hometown but we'll get more into that later so I think a lot of people are kind of aware of some very basics of hospitality, even if they can't necessarily put a name to it. There's certain things like etiquette that people are kind of like naturally aware of. Now, obviously, these kind of etiquette things change depending on area and culture. But if you like, for example, if you were kind of raised in a household where whenever somebody comes over like a guest comes over, you know, you try to offer them a drink or something within the first five or 10 minutes of them coming in. Like whether your custom is, you know, shoes off at the door or that kind of, or you let your, your, see, that's also another hospitality thing too. But um, yeah, offering a drink can be seen as something like, oh yeah, but that's just like good manners. It's like that it's good hospitality. Um, That particular one offering a drink is very common, but I would say um, the easiest link to make uh, with American culture, because like I have to say I'm American, so I'm coming from this from like an American perspective, is actually from ancient Rome when people would come over, travelers would come in, or even just guests if you're throwing a party, you would offer them literally a drink. You would usually offer them um, like a glass of wine. And a lot of times it's because it's like they had to walk to get to your house and Rome is kind of hot. Like, it can be some Mediterranean, you know, um, not to say that it's like desert like, but like if you're walking even in 75, 80 degree weather, you know, it's an it's like, you know, a, a late spring or summer day kind of thing. Like you probably worked up a little bit of sweat. It's nice for your, you know, you as the host, if somebody's walking to your house to be like, here, let me get you a drink of something. And of course, then there's the kind of double edged sword of back then, you know, clean water was was hard to get to, especially for that area so like you would drink watered down wine that was your way to hydrate yourself so it became like I mean yes it is part of um, taking care of your fellow man taking care of your neighbors but that is essentially what hospitality is it's how we treat each other and the kind of little um, rules whether written down and spoken or not that that we would we do to enforce how we how we take care of each other and also it's kind of one of the things if somebody who is who isn't hospitable who's inhospitable uh a way for us to immediately judge of how that person might treat us later because if they don't think about your care um especially in those ways that the culture kind of expects you to you can start to think how they might uh, disregard your humanity in other ways. And especially like in ancient times, this was very important with like um, 
you know, pre-ease modes of transportation, kind of like how I discussed in the Fafnir story um, a couple episodes back, like we, like people who are travelers, even if they're complete strangers, a lot of cultures um, had hospitality rules for how you treat weary travelers. And almost all of them, with very few exceptions, from Rome to Japan and China to India to Norway to even Africa, there's lots of, of course, Africa is a continent, but there are lots of like rules and customs on accepting them into your house. Um, how you accept them might differ between each of those cultures, you know, for, for good reasons on, on it. But generally speaking, it's, they have traveled a long way. The night is dark and full of terrors uh, and you accept them into your house um, so that they can travel again when it's safer. Ways you do that, where you put them up, how you feed them, those all vary. But the end result is almost always you accept them into your house because it's the right thing to do. And that's a part of hospitality. The right thing to do is almost always how to best take care of each other. Now for the Greeks, I think a lot of people are familiar with hospitality of ancient Greeks. They took it, this whole welcoming these weary travelers into their homes and putting them up um, whenever possible. You see this reflected, like I said, a lot of different cultures have this, but in the Greeks especially, they believed that that if one doesn't, that if one doesn't take in weary travelers, that this it is so inhospitable that they themselves would be punished by the gods. This idea of hospitality starts to mesh into this idea of the divine. Like this is a moral imperative. It is a sacred imperative. The gods will punish me if I break it. It's a sin now, essentially. Which I actually find very interesting because some, obviously there's some cultures where hospitality is highly... I can't really say it's like highly encouraged. It's expected, but it doesn't necessarily have a, I will be smote by the gods if I do not perform this custom. But at the same time, there's almost always a, however, my community will no longer trust me and I need my community to survive. But I, I do like looking at the ancient Greeks because they have a, an idea of, forget community, the gods themselves will come down and smite me if I do not help weary travelers, which is also why you tend to see um, Greek stories and Greek myths. Um, of course, they weren't myths back then, uh, but they were they were stories and parables that were told of the gods disguising themselves as travelers and then kind of testing to see if people would put them up for the night. Um, and which is why it, that itself became kind of like the boogeyman of if I don't do this, Zeus might smite me because it, this guy could be Zeus. I better be nice to him. You see this, interestingly enough, also in Norse culture, where you have these stories. They don't necessarily have the same kind of divine punishment as the Greeks did. But at the same time, you saw a lot of Odin and Thor and even Loki occasionally. Oh, Loki might, um, Loki's an interesting guy because he might reward or punish based on his own whims. But Odin and Thor, especially whenever they traveled and disguised themselves, there was a, a very standard formula to those stories. They disguise themselves as travelers if they get put up for the night. 
you know, usually the people would get rewarded if they did it. Something bad would happen to that family who refused them. You also see this in Indian culture and actually a lot of Asian culture as well. Um, again, it's less about the whole, I'm doing this because I don't want to be punished by the gods. Um, but there's an air of that depending on which region. And of course, um, you know, Indian and China are such wide swaths of culture and land. But especially in India, when you greet people, including even strangers, but any guests to your home, any anybody who's coming in who doesn't normally live there, you treat them in the best manner possible. You offer them, especially in China, you would offer them like your good tea, like you would save your best food for them. You would treat them as if they were gods. I mean, a little less on, obviously, I, f- I feel like sometimes when I say that uh, from an academic perspective, a lot of people understand me, but like the average American, they're like, you're going to treat them like God. you be like, well, there's less of the worship involved, but like, yeah, you treat them nicely. You the, This is where the American expression often comes from. You break out your best China. Um, not to say that you're reflecting it from the Chinese cultural attitudes, but rather the actual dishes that are made of like that, that, that China that is the really good expensive dishes that's what you serve your guests on like if you remember that from uh growing up in your culture that's the kind of idea that um has been expressed through ancient india and ancient china this idea of here's our everyday kind of stuff but like oh my gosh we have guests let's break out the good stuff like let's treat them well and also if you've ever had the occasion where, um, I know this happened with my own grandmother when she passed, um, she gave me all of her good dishes and, um, and she actually told me like, I wish I had more occasion to use these. And, you know, of course, meaning that she really did only save them for what she considered to be the best occasions. And for her, she wishes she, she had more good occasions to break them out. I think even in her own life, she only used them like a dozen or so times. And not to say that I like, I don't use them as an everyday kind of thing, but I am taking her words in mind. I take them out and use them a little bit more often than what she considered her special occasions. Those, uh, those weddings, um, or those like celebrations of great accomplishments, um, that kind of thing. Um, I tend to take them out on like birthday parties from, (laughs) from a personal perspective, but it's the same kind of thing in ancient, uh, in a lot of different ancient cultures. When you, when you break out like the good China, it's, you treat when when your when your guests come over and you and you bring out your good plates and stuff, your good silverware to greet them. That in itself is kind of a way for you to use those objects more because then you turn it into here is this event that's happening. I am taking you in. This is now a big deal. This isn't like an everyday thing. This is big. I will I will treat it as if it's a big thing, a big occurrence. And weirdly enough, this actually kind of brings me along into a slight tangent, as if this entire thing hasn't been tangents, of often how we see modern American hotel chains act, (laughs) where they try to do the guest experience, the guest services. Have you ever seen an ad for hotel where they're not talking about necessarily like, here, we got some good beds, you know, because like, that's what the hotel is selling, right? It's selling the bed for you to sleep in because you're visiting the city and you need a place safe to sleep. They very rarely talk about their beds and stuff anymore. A little bit because you expect if it's a hotel, they probably have nice beds, quote unquote. Although then if you start to think about it more, you think about like, how often do people sleep on those? But you know, anyway, that 
that way terror and hypochondria lie. So um, don't think too hard about that. They use great bleach. Anyway, but you see in these ads with hotels where they talk about the guest experience. It's like they talk about how every guest is treated specially. I think I even saw an ad for, I don't even remember which hotel it was, but like each guest is treated like royalty. That in itself is kind of a, (laughs) it is coming off based on those old hospitality uh, feelings, um, old hospitality rituals and etiquettes and customs that they basically moved into their capitalism marketing campaign. Anyway, we'll not talk about that anymore. <laughs> and with that, let's go cut to commercial. Hey guys, it's Eris cutting in for our regularly scheduled commercial break. First, I'd like to thank Pack Mule Photography for sponsoring this episode. They are a photography business in Kuwait, Oklahoma, and you can check them out at packmulephotography.com. I'd also like to thank Mac Boyle for producing this show and for hosting us um, and keeping us from not being crazy. I think we say that a lot. Um, yeah, he keeps us online for the most part. It's been a little harder with the COVID thing because he isn't like physically there to be like, all right, you need to wrap it up. Um, but you know, we, we've been doing all right. Um, we'd also like to thank uh, Party Now Apocalypse Later Industries for hosting this show and also for letting us be creative with their other podcasts that they have. You should check out The Holodeck is Broken. I am also on it because it's a Star Trek watch rewatch podcast and it is pretty good especially like it's it's good if you like star trek it's also good if you don't know a lot about star trek and like maybe you've only seen like a few episodes or something and you're like that seems really nifty but also like really long and complicated like listen to the holodeck is broken we'll kind of like put your toe in the water anyway so you should definitely check them out um you can find all of those shows and more at party now apocalypse later they are pretty great anyway today's fact of the day so gingerbread gingerbread is a lot older than i think people can at least me me i am people uh realize so ginger obviously is part of the ginger root um cultivated in ancient china gingerbread recipes go as far back as 2400 BC uh, in ancient Greece. There is a Chinese uh, gingerbread cookie recipe developed around the 10th century or so. Um, A lot of the ginger used in China, especially ancient, but also today, because like ginger is still a medicine. Um, It's a medical treatment. It's good to treat nausea. So Still definitely is why a lot of times you'll see like ginger candies used to kind of help with um, if you've got stomach issues. By the late Middle Ages, Europeans had lots of gingerbread cookies. Um, That's kind of when it started to really take off. They had access to ginger through trade routes, especially along the Silk Road. Um, Pretty much, you know, 10th BC and even before, like I said, Greece had it as far back as 2400 BC. Actually, Henry VIII is known to have eaten a lot of ginger. He actually, he was eating ginger in hopes that it was building resistance against the plague, which... Mm, I mean, it helped with your nausea, I guess. Anyway, but yeah, there and uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, they had the for sure the gingerbread cookies, the ones that like we would recognize today, the little flat hard cookies that are decorated with icing, and a lot of times they were like gilded in like gold leaf to be very decorative. And all along, these have been updated. Um, 
all the way up into the 16th century when in Germany gingerbread houses were first kind of introduced. There all along uh, both through these centuries and also through most of Europe there were gingerbread fairs and where bakers would um, show off like basically their skills in decorating and also in their recipes with experimenting with the different spices and stuff uh, in order to make the cookies. These cookies were meant to be eaten. Queen Elizabeth I was actually the first credited for trying to like up the decoration game and then ended up starting kind of inadvertently like in her honor kind of thing, starting these gingerbread fairs. Um, In England, these had already been kind of happening on and off again throughout uh, France and Germany. Now at these fairs um, in Germany in the 16th century, that's when people started to get really big with it. And basically that was when the first houses, gingerbread houses originated. They were the, you know, the, the houses that we see at Christmas, they're cookie walled and then they're decorated with either foil, gold leaf, um, and then also like lots of icing to hold them together and lots of other hard sugar candies. Um, to make the decorations for the houses. And in fact, this is actually where we get the term gingerbread work, which is the carved white architectural details found on a lot of um, colonial American homes, often seaside homes with that really delicate carved um, decoration is called gingerbread work. Gingerbread has been around a lot longer than I think a lot of people realize. It has been, um, if not necessarily a staple, definitely there's a really long history and culture attached to gingerbread um, in in medieval Europe that, that, yeah, like sometimes we think of it as a new concoction and it's really kind of not. It's been around for centuries. So anyway, that's gingerbread. I should have done this at Christmas. Back to the episode. So along with hospitality comes the idea of gift giving. Gift giving is often um, wrapped up in the etiquettes and customs of hospitality. While gifts are kind of almost always considered nice, there's definitely some type of like uh, cultural customs that are attached to them, um, both in ancient times and also today. A lot of our gift giving customs are directly related to the customs that we kind of developed in our own like uh, cultures in ancient history, essentially. A lot of them are have a lot of superstitious kind of things wrapped up into it. For example, uh, in India, a gift given with the right hand is considered to be more um, kind of like ethically pleasing and also auspicious than a gift given when the left hand, the left hand is considered um, in some form or fashion a bad luck. There's a, there's a much deeper reasoning. In fact, we go into it a little bit in our superstitions episode from last year, but um, the left hand in India uh, has a lot of like stuff kind of wrapped up in it. So it's always a good idea not to give your gift with your left hand, but rather to give the gift to your recipient in your right hand. It's considered just both there's a superstition and also just like it's a better formality, just like hand it, you know, with your right hand. Also, along with the right hand, um, Ghana also has a superstition. Well, not necessarily superstition, but like, again, it's kind of like a nice uh, showing of like good faith to, uh, to give the gift with your right hand. Also, um, Especially when it comes to wrapping paper, um, in Ghana too, it should it should be wrapped and presented. Also, um, much like a lot of these cultures that I'm going to hit on, a same same thing with Ghana. Uh, the gift is usually not opened immediately, and not opening the gift shouldn't be seen as like a. Uh, 
the recipient like doesn't like it or doesn't trust it it's considered rude you see this a lot in asian countries both japan and china have really strict gift giving kind of etiquette and politeness wrapped up and a lot of times it's seen as rude if you open it immediately um in japan especially there are whew, there are some rules around gift giving um it should always be wrapped and presented very nicely it should be presented with both hands um you if it's like especially if you're giving a gift to a superior of which times there are times when that's like so expected it's almost necessary especially if you're giving a gift to a boss at one of these times like there are certain times when it's like this is when it's appropriate to give gifts to your peers and this is when it's appropriate to give a gift to your boss um and there it's basically necessary Oftentimes in China, um, same kind of thing, uh, give, give the gift with both hands, have it not presented nicely, uh, wrapped nicely, bows or, or wrapping paper. It's often very common to refuse a gift like two or three times before finally going, okay, I guess I'll take it. You know, that kind of thing. You kind of do that whole like, oh no, no, you shouldn't have. Oh really? Like that kind of thing. You actually see that a lot in American culture too. This idea of like, oh, you're like giving something of like to me, oh, you shouldn't have. Um, there's a lot in that in terms of um, kind of like the polite refusal. And then the different types of gifts are also kind of a thing that can be wrapped up along with etiquette. Like in, in Russia, for example, giving something that's too expensive, something that might be viewed as expensive, can be seen as a form of a bribe. So a lot of the gifts... Um, not only are they may not be opened in front of the giver, they may be wait, something uh, the gift recipient may wait until later to open it up. The gift itself is also kind of scrutinized <laughs> with these kind of things. Vodka tends to be, as much as you might think it like a suitable gift, I know some people definitely think that. It's also it's considered an unimaginative gesture, a little bit like how there is a kind of a culture wrapped around gift cards in America with um, whether or not they're seen as unimaginative or not. Um, they can be useful. <laughs> Uh, but there, there's definitely kind of a cultural significance attached to gift cards as well. Um, there's even some people who might even consider it insulting, both in terms of American gift card giving and also vodka in Russia. There are also bad luck gifts in a lot of different countries. In China, to, to give somebody a clock can also can be seen almost like a death omen because of the way to say to give a clock is dialectically very similar to um, a phrase like sent off to death. And that's not necessarily for all Chinese dialects, but it's, it's widespread enough that it's kind of became like a mainstay. Like if you are a non-Chinese person visiting China, don't get a nice clock. Also, there's very many countries, especially in South America, but in Asian countries as well, that uh, knives or sharp objects, um, even like letter openers, can be seen to symbolize as a severance of that relationship. So like not not the most appropriate gift material there either. And along with that, there is, and then in Japan, there are a lot of types of symbolisms when it comes with gifts, which shouldn't be super surprising. We see this a lot in China. We see a lot in Korea and Taiwan. Um, but in Japan, when you give a gift, you should, uh, 
if you're giving it to a group of people, you should give everyone a gift. But if you are, you should not give gifts in sets of four or nine. Two is considered very lucky. Um, so if you're giving a gift to a couple, you give them both a gift. Um, but if you're giving out, you would not hand out four gifts or nine gifts. You would try to find a way to get it up to five. You would get it under eight. You would get it up to 10. Because four and nine are unlucky numbers in terms of the fact that both of the numbers um are phonetically very similar to um death and misfortune in japanese with some variations on basically how you write it but essentially like it those are considered the unlucky numbers this is you can kind of see in america with our superstition around the number 13 a lot of times i've talked about this in our last year's episode our superstitions episode um, where some buildings don't even have a 13th floor But when it comes to dinner parties, there's also another aspect of this superstition where you would never have 13 people sitting at the same table. This has been a superstition that's been like uh, skewed and kind of modified over the over years. It started with the whole superstition eh, of there was 13 people sitting at the table of Last Supper. Like it's either Jesus or Judas was the 13th member. So like basically symbolically like whoever is the 13th person to sit down at the table is going to like have the same fate (laughs) maybe uh, something like that. Um, Basically it's like you don't try to invite that bad luck by mimicking that kind of thing. Anyway so you would if you were then of course superstitious as a lot of people are slash were you would either invite, you know, well under that number or whatever. You would just ensure that 13 people weren't sitting at the same table at the same time. Either you would add another person in there. Um, I've even seen some occasions in literature where they talk about adding an extra chair and they just pretend that there's a guest, even though that guest never really shows up. Um, anyway, but that's like a literature thing. So you don't really know if that's like a plot trope, but yes. Yeah. So there is this kind of like, even when it comes to dining cards, <laughs> And who you might invite to your di- to your dinner party, you need to make sure that the number of guests uh, can- are correct because otherwise you might be inviting some ill fortune onto the whole affair and then everybody gets cursed and everybody dies or something. Superstitions are, are interesting in that effect that kind of like, as someone who is superstitious, it's this anxiety kind of thing. Like, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm just pretty sure it's going to be bad. <laughs> And I don't want to muck around with things that I can't fully explain. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a safety mechanism. This is the thing that pops up in a lot of different countries. Um, and this in Japan, especially when you're being given things or receiving things, it has a much more significant cultural attachment with the that number. You don't want to be the fourth person to receive a gift, unless of course there's a fifth person, and then it's totally fine. There's also certain types of gifts, just like in, in China, um, and also South America with the knives and stuff, of like inappropriate gifts. A lot of these tend to on how you read into them. For example, that with you are repaying a gift that was given to you, you would try to find something that was comparable in both sentiment and value or even slightly higher value in order to like kind of say like, thank you for the great gift you gave me. Here's one in return. You don't necessarily do this right away, but you do it on like a suitable occasion kind of nearby when that first gift was exchanged. 
You don't want to get too far away from the value. If somebody gave you a candle, you don't want to give them a Ferrari <laughs> kind of thing, which is a really silly example. But it's also something that, that can come up and things that I have seen come up in mostly in literature. It seems to be kind of a trope that happens in novels. But who knows? I mean, it's something that's, it's probably one of those stories passed on like, oh, your aunt told me about that. Her neighbor's cousin did that one time and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, that might be more of an Americanism right there with the whole like friend of a friend of a friend thing. But I think it works just about worldwide because people tend to be people, uh, creatures of habit. Anyway, and when you give gifts uh, tends to be also something that is can be like weirdly scrutinized in different cultures. Different cultures have different expectations of when they receive a gift, whether it's certain holidays that are used for gift giving um, or if it's like gift giving during celebrations, like do they celebrate a birth? Do they celebrate weddings? Do they even celebrate deaths is what kind of gifts are appropriate if gift giving is appropriate at all. Um, a lot of those that I've just named are all big ones in just about every culture, although with some variations between. There are several countries in, in Western Asia area. Um, I know Tibet for one. They don't really celebrate birthdays, so that's kind of a thing that, like, it's not that important. <laughs> so it's not something that's necessarily celebrated. Usually, weddings always seems to be the big one. There always seems to be big gifts given on weddings. Um, but who gives the gifts is kind of strange. A, a lot of European countries, you give gifts to the to the newly wedded couple with the expectation of a lot of this gift giving culture is built around they're going to go off and start their own lives separate from their parents now. So now they need like stuff that's like because they're not going to be able to borrow their parents' stuff anymore. So the gift giving idea of giving them like useful things, um, you know, cookware or sheets or stuff like that. Um, it's where like definitely the American registry thing came from. That was because you're seeing the couple off. Um, in some other cultures, um, in, in some indigenous tribes of, of America, the couple who was getting married give gifts to the guests as almost like, like, oh, thank you for like seeing us together in our new part of our journey of our lives. Like, here's some gifts to see us off. Like, thanks. Um, and you see that a lot uh, in various things. Gifts are exchanged, but who, like, depending on your culture, depends on who is getting the gift and what kind of gift it is, etc. So... Um, anyway, that has been my possibly very long, possibly very short episode on uh, just hospitality around the world. A lot of it comes back from we have not really updated our hospitality. We've just added to it uh, depending on our cultures. We've a lot of these these foundations and, and frameworks were built very long ago based on when your community literally could make or break you. And and now we've just sort of added to it as the years gone by, you know, it works. It still works and it's still interesting to look at. So thanks for listening. Uh, catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to like, 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 like. And subscribe to As The Myth Turns on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And email us at asthemythturns at gmail.com. Transcripts for this episode can be found at our WordPress site, asthemythturns.wordpress.com. Our theme song is called Fretless by Kevin McLeod. 
You can find this song and all his others at incompetech.com.